you're listening to another episode of A Lady and Some Dudes Podcast. Welcome to another episode to A Lady and Some Dudes. Today we start for a grateful moment. And my grateful moment is the ability to listen to Beanie Man and Bounty Killer. One of the co-hosts is really out of her mind saying that Bounty won, but Beanie won. <laughs> Dion? Hello. Um, my grateful moment of the week is the continuation of my project. Um, we are up to, and when I say we, I mean me, um, I have fed now 570 families so far in the Charlotte area. Um, I do have a goal this week to hit 600, and I am on pace to meet that expectation and exceed it. So I am very grateful for that. Um, we all know that Bounty Killer won that clash on Saturday, so we'll just leave it at that. Kel? What's going on, everybody? Um, good to be back this week. Um, one of my grateful moments... Um, to highlight was something simple, man. Just being able to exercise. I was uh, able to meet up with a couple of my friends this week, um, and we went to go uh, ride up, ride some bikes. So I was just grateful uh, being able to, you know, spend some time with some friends, enjoy nature, uh, and that was that was a plus for me. So that was my grateful moment. All right, E. What's up, everyone? Um, I I I'm grateful moment for. Uh, this this week is the fact that my uh, kindergartner graduated, even though it was digital. Uh, he graduated and he moved on. He's going on to first grade, so I'm so proud of him. Uh, also, uh, I've had a great opportunity uh, since we've been in quarantine to prepare to launch um, um, a podcast. We've done some stuff on Facebook, and we're really building up our inventory, but my wife and I are doing one called Married with Children. Uh, we just talk about the realities of being Black, Christian, uh, clergy, I'm a, I'm a pastor, clergy, uh, family, and it's a lot of fun, a lot of laughs, um, but also spiritual messages. So we do enjoy doing that. It should be launching soon uh, on uh, Spotify and things of that nature. Great, great. And thank you everyone for sharing for a grateful moment. So now let's get right to it. Today we're featuring one of our hosts, um, Calvin Green. We want to talk about his experience and where he grew up from, and also his impact in basketball, especially in a collegiate level college. He is a college basketball player, well-known, especially in the Philadelphia area. So we're gonna start off, Calvin, tell us the history of your introduction to basketball and actually where you grew up and a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, I grew up, I uh, grew up in Philadelphia, uh, Philly. Um, grew up playing uh, playground ball. Uh, playing um, in the streets, in the gyms. <laughs> um, and Philly's a tough place, you know, to play basketball. So, you know, from the age of, I probably played organized basketball probably around 11 or 12. I was, I was mostly uh, just playing on my neighborhood, playing on my block, actually, create basketball and things like that. And and I probably um, really got into playing basketball because my older brother and my cousins would play a lot. And 
I wanted to hang out with them and not hang out with my friends. So basketball was a, was a, was an outlet for me to be able to hang with my older brother. <laughs> so that's pretty much my history behind, um, you know, growing up in Philly or whatever and playing ball. And at, at what point in time did basketball transition from being your outlet to being a legitimate passion of yours? Yeah, so the thing about it is in Philly, you know, that was the main sport. So when I when I first started playing ball, it was a funny thing because I was my brother was in the car one day we were riding home and my dad was was talking to us uh, and my brother was like, you know, I'm glad we're not like those kids in North Philly or whatever. And that's like one of those areas that's like, uh, you know, impoverished areas. And my dad wanted to humble us. So the next week he called his boy up and he was like, look, I'm bringing the boys down to the playground. So we in the heart of North Philly playing basketball. And that first game I was playing, I was, I was like, like really good. I never played with the guys before or anything like that. And I realized like, yeah, I can actually play this. And I was playing finally with people my age. So, you know, I was like at an advantage and I'm used to playing with older people. So I became passionate once I realized that, you know, I was pretty talented and I was gifted at the sport. So seeing that you uh, start playing at 11 or 12, uh, how is it that you ended up going, being recruited to play basketball for another school in high school. Uh, yeah, so got a scholarship. Yep, so that's that's funny too. So um basketball and sports in general is something that really has gets a lot of traction. So I was playing at the um the police athletic league, it's called POW. Um and I was playing at a POW center uh in in a league and all of a sudden the officer was just trying to recruit me uh to play play basketball at a high school, it was prep school, because I actually played, um, I actually played football, basketball, and baseball. So uh, he recruited me to right out of, when I was in eighth grade, and it was like a scholarship for like $120,000, and that's a lot of money for high school. So um, uh, I went to interview with the school, uh, I looked at the school, the school was called Perkyoma School, and um, right right off of me just playing in the city, just playing ball, you know, got some notice and some notoriety. And they gave me, they offered me the scholarship in high school to play at Perky Omer. Did you play any other sports during this time in school? So yeah, so yeah, like, um, so I played, when I had, when I played at Perky Omer, part of the scholarship was just three sports. So I was playing football, I was playing baseball, and I was playing basketball, of course. So that was, so that was the three sports that I played throughout uh, high school, football, basketball, and baseball. And as you now look forward to your collegiate career, um, what prospects were on the table for you? Um, did you have a preference as to where you played? Tell us a little bit about that process. Yeah, so it's really, really interesting. I was probably getting the most looks um, in football, uh, but I quickly realized that there was no, absolutely no shot for me to play football in college. So a lot of, a lot with my recruitment process was I stopped playing football after my 11th grade year because I started trying to take basketball more serious. Um, 
and baseball, I was I had some um, some some scholarships offers. Also, I was probably raw raw the most raw in baseball, and basketball was my passion. And football, I was probably just the most gifted. Um, but I but I chose basketball because I just believed that it was going to be some type of way I was going to be able to play basketball. So as far as like in recruitments and things like that. Um, a lot of schools that I had, I had, I had schools, I had some D1 schools, um, but a lot of schools, they jumped off of me when they would come recruit me and they would say, uh, they would say basically, okay, what are we going to do about this Saturday thing? Because in high school, uh, what happened was uh, it came to the attention of everybody because my first freshman year, uh, we, we finally went to we was good. Finally, we, my freshman year of high school, we was pretty good. And I missed the, the conference semifinal game. So, you know, everybody was like, you know, why you missed the conference semifinal game was, a, it was like a meeting in a league. So, so they found out the reason why. So they said, okay, going forward, we're going to have all the games uh, where, where, you know, it's, it's accessible for everybody to play. So that was the first thing that happened. So about time we get to my senior year, um, I don't have that problem anymore. But the question comes up again, okay, what are you going to do <laughs> on Saturdays? You know, I, I, we, we believe that your, your parents are the reason why you didn't, you know, play in high school because they still were under your, you still were under their uh, control. But in, in college, you got your own decisions. So when I made it known to everybody that, you know, I was going to just, I was going to still miss, on, miss out on those Saturday games, um, <laughs> everything kind of just went silent. Uh, so, um, so that's kind of like the, the short, the short end of it, but yeah, so it went silent, but, um, what happened was Coppin state, um, Coppin state coach came and saw me and, um, kind of circling back a little bit after the season, my, my senior season, I also broke my foot. I was, I was, I was a player of the year in that area. I was all state. Um, I had all the accolades for as sports, for as basketball is concerned, but I broke my foot. So that was another reason why schools were saying, okay, uh, yeah, you, we're going to do have to do prep school. Prep school is going to show us whether you want to play ball on a Saturday and whether your foot is going to recover enough for us to give you the scholarship. So I ended up, um, but Coppin State, they kind of convinced my parents. They said, look, we're going to make sure the games on Saturday or Saturday night. And we're gonna give you the scholarship without you even uh without you even recovering from your foot. We're gonna we're gonna help you recover from your foot <laughs> uh with our trainers and our trainers dad. So actually my mom and my dad was sold. So it was not it was out of my it was out of my uh it was out of my scope after that. It was like, you know, you going no matter what. Like and I cried because I didn't want to go there. I was I wanted to go to St. Joe's, I wanted to go to Temple, I wanted to go to all these the big five schools in Philly. But, you know, uh, Coppin gave the best sales pitch to my parents. So it is what it is, and I ended up going to Coppin State. Okay, so uh, seeing now that you made Coppin State with a uh, broken broken foot, uh, what was, I would say, rehab-like? And then two, after you rehab, what was the balance between going to school and being a basketball player? Were you a basketball player first? or a student first in the, in the university's mind? Mm, that's a great question. So I was always a basketball player first, you know, um, 
I didn't even care anything about, um, you know, my education when I went to school, to be honest with you guys. And that was probably, that was to a fault. And that, you know, looking back, I wish I did. But, you know, when you talk about uh, a, a good athlete, uh, you talk about a basketball player that, that can that can go to the next level, at least I perceived and people perceive that, um, you know, your thought process is all about, you know, school, You're not school, I'm sorry, but, but basketball. Uh, and, and the coaches talked about the three B's and I won't say it because it's a family program, but one is basketball and books. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and it was, it was kind of like the order was basketball in books. Uh, the first two, I want to go to the last one, but so I was more focused on, um, I was more focused on basketball, of course. And then my rehab, um, you know, I had a little cockiness with me when I was there. Cause I was like, man, listen, this school is below my level. Um, and I'm looking at the team. I'm like, look, yo, I'm gonna take this thing over. As soon as I'm re- as soon as I, uh, I'm ready to go, I'm taking this thing over. But you know, it was a it was a good good thing for me. I had a good staff, and they got me ready. Um, after that red shirt year, they got me ready. You know, a lot of pool workouts, a lot of strength and conditioning. So you know, it was it was a, it was a good time. It was a, a great experience, but it was a kind of experience that you know you don't even know what you're getting yourself into when you go to college uh, playing sports anyway because it's like primarily a job <laughs> more than it is uh, being, a, um, being an education and being a student athlete. It's more about being an athlete, honestly. You, um, you mentioned during your high school recruitment process that um, Coppin provided the best package and they seem to be very accommodating um, to your religious beliefs and not playing on the Sabbath. Um, would you say that that continued on once you were there at Coppin State? Did they continue to be accommodating to your beliefs? Yeah, um, so it's, that's, a, that's a yes and no, probably more so no towards the end. Um, so what happened was they didn't really expect me to, to make the impact that I made my freshman year. So, you know, they telling my parents and telling me, listen, don't worry about it. You know, this is a family environment. And, you know, it pretty much was. But when it comes down to a business part of it, um, if you have a player that's probably like the most do- like the most dominant on the team and um, putting up numbers and uh, one of the leaders on the team and helping you win games, it's a business. You know, it's it, it's different at each level, you know, even though Coppin was a HBCU, lower tier division one, um, it was all about money, you know, making money and, and then which can you do for me? So when, when that impact was made and I had success my first, my freshman year, uh, then things got really, really cloudy because now it's like, okay, um, what we going to do now? You're going to have to make another, you're going to have to make a decision. We're going to have to revisit everything we talked about initially. You have to revisit all that because we got we got moves to make and you can help us and we need you to be there. Okay, so um, know, knowing your background a little bit, knowing that story, uh, describe to us that that climactic moment. I'd say when you know compensate. You said it's a lower tier Division one school, so we know lower tier Division one schools don't make it to the tournament, but Coppin State had an opportunity to make it to the tournament. Uh, but the only way they're going to go is if you won your conference tournament. And, and, and the conference tournament championship came 
uh, on a Saturday. So uh, tell us about that experience heading into that moment. Um, was there was there inner turmoil or was it like, you know, I'm saying my little beliefs and they're going to just abide by it. So, yeah, um, that whole, <clears throat> that whole week leading up to the tournament was really crazy. Um, it was really, be, really crazy because I felt like I was just, I felt like I was isolated. Um, a couple of days before um, the actual game, um, Evan, you know, I had a, um, a studio interview on ESPN. And when I had this interview with ESPN, it was, it, was some, it was a show they had called Cold Pizza. And they were asking me about my season, how I did, you know, talking about, um, I was like ranked top 10 in the country, three-pointers or something. I don't know. It was some crazy stats, whatever. But they were asking me, how am I accepted now on campus, you know? Um, your team is a, your team has a chance to make it to the NCAA tournament. What are you going to do? Where are you going to be at uh, during the game? So then I felt like it was a uh, it was a kind of a bullseye on my back uh, from everybody who was watching uh, my whole school, um, whoever was following us pretty much. So I you know it kind of felt um, isolated and didn't know what the next move was going to be. So I felt alone pretty much at that moment of my career playing basketball, especially when that moment happened. And I, and I was like, I was, it was helpless. Like I couldn't help my team. And I knew I was probably going to take some blame if we lost that championship game because I wasn't there. And, you know, you try to think about, you know, what people really think. They say one thing, but people really think you hear things. They, they think a whole different thing. So it was just an awkward situation I was in, man. But, you know, time goes on. I'm going to ask a question so the audience will understand how much impact you had on the team. The Coppola State have not made the NCAA tournament since 1997. And this is 2004, right? Around 2004? Right, right. Mm -hmm. And the opportunity for them to actually get to this tournament. How did this affect you and affect the school? So it was, uh, I didn't really realize how much it affected the school. Um, until later when I had, we had our meetings, uh, end of the year meetings with the uh, coaching staff. Um, so, oh man, so how did it affect the school? It affected the school uh, financially the most, where I found out um, when the coach told me, we, you know, you caused the school to lose $250,000 pretty much because if you get to that first round back then, so the money probably went up back then, if you, if you made it to the first round of the tournament, your school gets money. So your school gets money. He's the athletic director and the head coach. So he's going to divvy up the funds how he wants to divvy up the funds. So uh, it, it affected the school, I, I would say, probably financially. Um and, and, and me personally, it, it affected me uh, dealing with relationships with, with my uh, peers, uh, my teammates. You know, I, I know a lot of people had a, had a lot to say about, you know, us losing and me not playing uh, just because the stakes was a little bit higher. So when the stakes are a little bit higher, you know, that, that, that love can turn into hate real quick. <laughs> So yeah, it was it was definitely I definitely felt I definitely felt the pressure. Definitely felt the pressure. So I want to ask one last thing. Um, what happened after? Can you tell us what happened after the results of you standing up 
and because you stand up for your religion belief, we'll come to find out that game, the game. So the game was to play in game. If you had won that conference tournament, you would have went, in, went to the NCAA tournament. But because you stood up, didn't play, they felt you're not playing cost them the ability to get into that tournament, the NCAA tournament. And what happened after that? Um, so after that was, after that was, um, <clears throat> it was kind of fake, you know, um, besides, you know, us losing that game, you know, like I said, we, we, we actually was the first time to feel that we won the uh, league. So we, we won an actual league for the first time too that year. Uh, so it was a lot of anticipation, you know, it was a lot of anticipation going into it. So after that look that, you know, we get to that climax of possibly going and winning and then we lose. Um, after that, it was funny. So I had, a, like I said, I had my closing meeting. I'm talking with the coaches and the coaches are telling me it was really funny. And they were like, listen, is it your parents? Like, what's going on? We really, you, you really got a chance. You got a career. To, you got a chance to make some money. You got a chance to make some noise. You in these street, you in the, uh, these magazines, you know, people talking about you. We getting, we getting some calls. Um, you got to kind of make a decision. And what's crazy about it was he actually had like a, a, a reverend call my room, <laughs> call my, my room in, uh, in well, my college dorm. It's kind of disgusted me, discussed with me why it was okay to play on the Sabbath. So it got to the point where it was like, you know, we're gonna get you to we get we gonna get you to switch, not just for you, but for uh for us, you know, pretty much for them anyway. But he was saying, like, you need to make a different decision because we feel like it's not you. We feel like it's your uh your family behind this. And we wanna we wanna go as far as to tell you, look, um, we care about you. We'll be able to provide a place for you to stay during the summer if you're worried about not being able to go home. So they talked about, you know, uh, giving me uh, housing um, year round so I can stay up in Baltimore. So it got kind of it got kind of crazy right there. For somebody that's, you know, I don't know how it was at the time, but that's kind of like a lot of pressure and a lot of, uh, you know, decision making, big decision making to have, you know, that thrown in your face. So that was that was crazy. It was it was crazy at that moment. Um, you mentioned that the Reverend came and spoke with you in an attempt to convince you to do otherwise. Um, what was that conversation like for you? Like, did you fire back with what your core beliefs were? Um, how did you handle someone essentially telling you what you believe is wrong and you should do something else? So yeah, actually, I thought it was funny. Like I, I thought it was kind of funny at first because I'm in the dorm room playing NBA Live or, or Madden or something like that, and this and it actually was a phone call. My you know my room phone rings, and my and my uh, one of my buddies like, "Yeah, what's the bread?" And I'm like, "The bread? What are you calling me for?" So uh, we get on the phone, and he start telling me how you know. It's, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And you'll be doing a lot, a lot of good for, for not just yourself, but for the university if you play. So he started, he started giving me some scriptures that he thought was going to lead to me changing and playing. So it was, it was kind of crazy, Dion, to be honest, because I never had uh, nobody call me, especially like a, a reverend call me and, and try to convert me over over a quick 10 minute conversation. He like, listen, I had to talk to your folks. I talked to your folks, 
But didn't didn't uh, Jesus tell you if your ox is in the ditch, you could get it out? And so he started he start quoting all these verses and telling me how I needed to play. I'm like, yeah, how did you get my number? <laughs> That's what I'm thinking in my head. But uh, it was it was it wasn't an intense conversation. It was like because the guy, you know, he was a really good guy. He was a friend of the program, a really good person. So we had a good conversation. But you know, at the end of it, I let him know my stance and I let him know this is like playing basketball in the Sabbath. They don't they don't mix as far as you know. I, I believe it's breaking the Sabbath totally if you're playing sports. Um, you know, on that holy holy time. So um, they always say hindsight is twenty twenty. Um, looking back at that experience, do you regret the decision you made at that time? Um, no, I don't regret it at all. Because uh, now, you know, you get wisdom too as you get older. And I realized um, the impact that um, my stance made to a lot of people, people I do know and people I don't even know. That's crazy because, um, you know, for later times, probably a story I could tell you about that too. Um, but yeah, so my imp the impact that I made, uh, it was bigger than basketball. And that's one thing people don't understand because we live in this culture right here that's that's now. And, and uh, you know, everything is based on um, the culture. And and I choose the culture of God over the culture of man. So that's pretty hard. That's, pr that's hard to understand for people. But, you know, now looking back, <clears throat> I wouldn't have, I wouldn't be the man that I was today. I wouldn't have the friends that I have today. I wouldn't have the family that I have today if I did anything differently. So I think uh, the steps that I made ultimately made me a better person, which I'm grateful for. Uh, one, one, one thing I wanted to, to um, say was, as you took this stand, obviously I know you're, you're connected to a much bigger Philly basketball network. What were some of your contemporaries who knew you in Philly, knew you didn't play on Sabbath, did they say anything to you during this time frame or afterwards? Or was it just kind of just like, were you in this alone? Or even did your parents, when this was going on, did they call you to praise you, to encourage you, or your pastor? Man, listen, man, this kind of brings back some, some I don't even know if it's trauma, man, to be honest. <laughs> because I felt like uh, I was definitely all alone, man. Um, the neighborhood, uh, the neighborhood had dreams for me, of course. Um, my peers, you know, I got folks that's playing in the NBA, folks that's playing high-level basketball overseas, Euro leagues, and things like that. And everybody's like, yo, um, like, what are you doing? <laughs> and it was, it got to the point where it was really frustrating because um, some people were like, didn't like me because of it. You know, as if I was like thinking I was better than somebody or whatever. I don't know what's going on in people's minds, but people were like legitimately upset. Like, you know, if I had all this talent, there's no way in the world I wouldn't play. You know what I'm saying? There's no way in the world I pass up this money, pass this opportunity up. Um, and it was and it was tough for me, but it was tough for my dad too because I remember that was the only person I feel like I can talk to, and I and I realized that he really just didn't know what to say to me. You know, he would just be encouraging as much as he could, be supportive, do whatever he could be. He really didn't know what to say to me because, you know, he wasn't in that situation or knew anybody that was in that situation. So he did what he was supposed to do and just be a dad and be comforting and, and let me know, um, you know, I'm supporting you. You know, and my dad was like, whatever you want to do, 
<laughs> you know what to do, but don't think that it's me or the family that's telling you not to do what you what you want to do because that's not what it is. Um, your decision is your decision. Because my older brother was playing playing sports and uh, at, uh, he was playing at Temple, and and I'm not throwing my brother under the bus, but he was playing college football at Temple University, and a lot of people was like, "Yo, Kel, your brother playing? You know why you're not playing?" Um, so, um, so that was like a little conflict right there. It made people even question what I was doing even more because my, my brother was doing stuff and I wasn't doing it. It's, uh, I was I wasn't playing. So, one of the questions I want to ask you: any are any of those contemporaries understand you know, your stance now compared to then? True friends do. Um, the true friends do. Um, God always puts people in your life um, that'll be there to nurture and support you, man. Um, but I remember one of my mentors was uh, Katino Mobley. And, um, you know, I grew up under him. He played for Houston Rockets, the LA Clippers. He played for a lot of NBA teams, had a long career. And that was my boy. That was my old head, I called him. And uh, so Mobley was like, so Cat, I call him Cat. Um, he always would, would you know, kind of like, yo, what you doing? What's going on? And, um, and uh, you know, how's, how's it going? Whatever, school, whatever. And, you know, we would work out and do things like that. And we kind of we kind of lost touch um, when he was playing. I forgot if he was in L.A. at the time when I was in college playing ball. And when I saw him again, we met up in Philly just playing. And he was asking me, like, yo, like, you know, what's going on? What you doing? Like, why you ain't playing such and such? Why you ain't doing this, that, and third? And I told him about like, you know, the Sabbath and why, and the reason why I wasn't, you know, playing at these places or whatever. And he must've forgot or whatever. But when we had that conversation, it was like the look at disgust he had that day. I was like, I'll never forget it. Cause I was like my old head. And I, I know a lot of these guys and players and played with them and friends, but, but for him, you know, I thought he was a friend first. And, uh, you know, just a mentor second. And he just looked at me like I was kind of crazy. Like, yo, I don't believe you're not going to pursue this or let this get in the way of your basketball career. So that, that was a kind of little sad moment, man. But then, you know, you had other people that just believed. Like I had a coach, a trainer, a mentor. Um, he just believed that, that somebody was going to take a chance on me like somebody did at Coppin. Because he just believed, like, you know, listen, you work hard, you're talented, just that and the third. I believe in my heart that somebody's going to give you a chance and you're going to be able to practice your faith and play at the same time. So that was my that was my vision. That was some people's vision. It didn't come to fruition totally. But, um, yeah, so, you know, as far as different people, different people had different perspectives and some people was happy for me, some people weren't. So it just is what it is. I think what's... Uh what's what's crazy is um you know we see as as spectators we see basketball as just something fun to do and there are a lot of people who say man you know these these athletes particularly uh, in basketball and football where a lot where a lot of black athletes where a lot of black athletes um go to get scholarships they say you know they should just be happy that they're getting a scholarship they get a full ride you know why are they complaining why should they deserve money i'm not saying uh that they should have paid you, but I think it's fascinating that when when the discussion of biblical theology came up, 
uh, they said, you know, you can play basketball on Sabbath, but they didn't apply similar biblical theology to that you shouldn't, uh, in essence, that, that, that it's okay to treat athletes as modern day slaves with better accoutrements. <laughs> so um, I, guess, I guess with that statement, my question is looking at this G League thing, do you think the G League move is a, is a justice move uh, based upon the corruption that was building within the NCAA? Yeah, so, man, that's a good question, man. Um, I think it's a joke um, what the NCAA is doing to to the athletes. And I think it's a, a decision, you know, that, that's probably, that should have been coming a long time ago as far as, like, these athletes, uh, you know, taking the, the road to the G League instead of the NCAA. I believe the athletes should be compensated. I always tell people, I always would tell people, you know, when you play sports in college, you know, it's a full-time job, you know, you don't get compensated for it. And, you know, I had friends that played at these, you know, these major universities, uh, UVA, Arizona, um, you know, all the Duke, whatever you want to say, whatever, whatever uh, college you want to say. And I would go to the game sometimes and I would see, you know, everybody in the stands with their, like, jersey on. They had a name on it, but they had their number. So you know who it was. And I would just think to myself, like, wow, these guys can't even get – he can't even get paid off of this. And they, like – then the argument would be, okay, well, they, he's a uh, he's getting a full ride uh, playing playing basketball. That's just, That should be his payment enough. And then I would say, okay, there's a band member getting a full ride playing uh, or, or, or for being a band member, but at the same time – um, they can work if they wanted to. <laughs> That's the, you know we were literally not able to work, you know, in college. So we would we would we would do our sweat, blood, sweat, and tears in basketball and in school, and we couldn't we didn't have no money. Uh, meanwhile, everybody else had money. So I, I do think those guys are doing the right thing because they can get compensated for their skill set, and that's what I think they should be doing. Um, thank you for that perspective, and, and it, it kind of leads us naturally um, into this conversation about um, the NCAA versus the G League. And um, you mentioned something I've felt that has been a topic of discussion for a long time, whether or not um, student athletes should be paid. And um, even though I am not a former athlete myself, uh, well, in the traditional sense, I ran track, but I always felt strongly that um, athletes should be played. Because when you look at the NCAA system, you have these elite high school players coming in to play for, you know, a myriad of schools. They are making billions of dollars for these college teams, okay? We're not talking millions, we're talking billions. When you think of um, programs like Duke, when you think of Kentucky, when you think of Kansas, when you think of UCLA. And in my mind, it is almost offensive to say, well, we pay your tuition and we'll give you a meager stipend. Um, you should be content when these athletes are essentially lining the pockets of um, these organizations. And so I agree with you 100% um, about that. I think the G League now is probably going to 
caused the NCAA to come to the table with a better solution because now we see that elite players are opting for alternatives um, than entering in the um, NCAA system. And so um, I really do appreciate that perspective. Yeah, definitely. And another thing is, um, another part of it too, is like nowadays, what's happening is uh, NCAA is trying to crack down, crack down on everybody. One of the hidden things in college basketball is that um, people been getting paid <laughs> under the table to go to these universities. So, you know, you, of course, people won't say it. I can say it. I don't work for nobody. So um, I had plenty of friends that received stuff from uh, from universities or whatever. So they starting to try to do a lot of investigating now. And because of that, these high-level athletes are saying, look, I'm not going to go through all that. Um, and, the, and these universities are uh, cracking down on them getting money from booster clubs, uh, just alumni, or what have you. Uh, so now you kind of put in those athletes in that position where they're like, okay, I'm going to go get some money, and I'm, I'm just going to be legally, and I don't have to worry about all this nonsense. So it's going to take away from the product of the NCAA, of course, but at the end of the day, the NCAA was being greedy and unfair. So, you know, you reap what you sow at the end of the day. I want to pose a question to everyone. So who's the biggest loser during this transition? Is it NCAA, the student athlete, the athlete, or the NBA? Um, the big, I, I don't know if, if we can couch it in terms as the biggest loser yet. I feel like the G League have really picked up steam um, within the last two years or so, particularly this year, um, because we have three top five recruits now that have agreed to go to the G League as opposed to um, going into NCAA basketball and Jalen Green. We have Isaiah Todd and we have Dacian Nitz, who's very unique because he actually accepted um he agreed to go and play for UCLA and he actually reneged um that acceptance to um you know to go ahead and play for the G League so I think what we're seeing here is that now we have a model where the G League these athletes are going to be paid five hundred thousand dollars to go to the G League they're going to be compensated if necessary they can get endorsements you know, they can be paid for their likeness, things that have been rumblings underneath um, the NCAA conversation for years. So I do think now that the NBA is essentially cultivating a legitimate minor league system, so, so to say, I think that um, it's definitely going to have an effect on the NCAA. I feel like it will only be beneficial for the NBA, because now you're cultivating talent, you are compens compensating them for it. I mean, I can list the benefits of going to the G League over going for the NCAA. I mean, it is numerous, right? And so I think what this is going to do ultimately is, is cause the um, NCAA to come back to the table, readdress that collective bargaining agreement as to whether or not student athletes should be compensated 
Um, and it's very interesting. I remember Kevin Durant is my favorite player. You guys know that. And I remember hearing him in an interview previously saying that he wished he did not have to go to Texas to play. Like he wanted to go to the NBA straight out of high school. But of course you have that 19 year old requirement. And he said, what this does is a lot of our elite athletes, they don't come from um, affluent families. They come, they're poor. And Kevin said, my family needed finances. He wanted to support his family. And the NCA just did not provide a segue for him to be able to do that. And so when you have athletes of that caliber speaking out against the NCAA and how it affects lifetime decisions, I think absolutely there is um, going to be some backlash from it. And I think the NBA will only benefit from having this model. Uh, what I would say is looking at it from not from legal perspective, uh, but also uh, speaking from a former athlete's perspective, I, I was an intramural star, intramural star. Uh, I averaged about six points a game in intramurals in college. So, um, <laughs> uh, but honestly, uh, seriously, I, I think that, so I think, I think about this in a couple of ways. So one, I feel as if uh, the, the athletes before, because there's always been this pressure, athletes before would choose to go to the league before they were ready and sometimes mature enough. And a lot of guys who probably could have gone on to have productive long careers flamed out too soon, right? So the issue with that is, the great thing now is they get to come into a system, they get money to pay for them, and then they also have the opportunity to be drafted. So instead of coming in and being drafted and put all this pressure on you, you're put in a position to grow for your talent to be cultivated in a way that the NBA sometimes doesn't have, right? Because sometimes coaches like Larry Brown wasn't a player developer. You had to come to him as a completed, complete product. So if you got in a system like that, you're messed up, but you get to step into a developmental portion and then still later on be drafted. So I like what the, what, what, uh, the G League is doing. I also, I may be wrong, but I thought I had an understanding that if you did this, for, chose to forego college and go to the G League, that they would set aside money, scholarship money for you to go to school later, if you so chose. So I think that it's, it's, it's far and away better to go to the G League, right? Because I don't think the way the system's set up in college is fair in the sense of, look, you get an education, but what kind of education are you really getting? And we, we know the history of UNC Chapel Hill and the athletes taking these fake classes. What happens essentially is people are graduating with a degree, but no skills uh, and, and no uh, real ability to get into uh, the workforce, at least within their major. So for me, if I weren't a Sabbath observing individual and my child was good enough to go to be a top tier athlete, I say, go to the G League and do college later, as opposed to go to college and try to manage basketball. It, it, it's too much to manage at one time because as, as Kevin highlighted in his interview, 
you're a basketball player first and a student second. So if I, when I go to school, I want to be able to focus on what I want to learn as opposed to focusing on basketball and, 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 and then trying to make sure I, I get some grades. I absolutely agree. And, and like, let's just take a look at the environment that the NCAA breathes, right? So in 2018, I remember the FBI, they were investigating corruption um, with regarding college players for violating NCAA rules for receiving compensation. Um, how do I know this? Because I'm a lawyer and I'm nerdy. Like, that's just kind of what I do. But um, you had players that came up, Trey Young, Kyle Kuzma, Dennis Smith Jr. You had Adebayo, Isaiah Whitehead. I mean, these are prominent current athletes, right? That was taking money under the table because it was a necessity. And um, the reality of it is the, the players that are usually affected by this are black athletes. And that perception to me is so troubling. When the NCAA has the power to change the rules in a way where this wouldn't be an issue. I don't want to read about these young black athletes that have to do this based on these stringent rules in the NCAA. So for me, absolutely, as Evan mentioned, if I had a child that was talented enough, I'm talking about top five, all around five-star player, I would want my child to consider going to the G League because there's a salary, my child can get endorsements, my child will be playing against better competition. What people don't know is you have um, all the athletes in the G League, they are all vying to make it to the NBA. You have legitimate talent there compared to what the talent that they face in college basketball. The reality is you have a few really extraordinary players and then you have some good players and then you have dudes that probably grew up on my block. Like the competition drops off at such a high level in the NCAA. Um, the G League prepares athletes for what the NBA is going to be like. They travel across the United States to play games. So already you're already creating this culture of what their professional career is going to be. Um, I know that they also offer an online education platform for athletes that want it at Arizona State University as well as put money aside if they later decide they want a college education. Um, NBA scouts are there nightly. So in my opinion, you get much more exposure from scouting in the G League than you would in the um, NCAA. And one of the things I like about the G League is it is treated like a business. Now these athletes sign a contract, but this is in the league. There's nothing guaranteed. If you don't perform, they can cut you, right? And so I think it breeds a sense of maturity within the athlete that allows them to really excel um, at another level. And so for these reasons, um, it's the G League for me. Yeah, and um, my, my opinion, um, hearing everybody's thoughts and I think they were good thoughts quality 
I think everybody loses. Um, I think everybody loses in this. I think the NCAA loses, of course, because anytime um, you don't get the best quality, your product is not as good. So the best quality would be those top-tier athletes playing uh, within the NCAA will make your product a lot better, especially in the days now, social media. We all know who's up and coming from high school. We all know who uh, who's supposed to be playing at the next level. And then, you know, I think the players lose too somewhat. Um, one thing we have to understand is um, that, that the players, as a player, you benefit from the college experience. Um, you are very young when you, when you come from high school. You're still immature. Um, college brings you a lot of things that, that, that you – it's a lot of things that you won't get. Um, you jump into a situation where your life just becomes a business. And athletes have to mature at a really high pace, um, especially pro athletes. But college uh, brings certain things that you just you just can't. It's priceless, man. You can't create that atmosphere in an NBA situation, an NBA setting. And then also, some of your your best coaches are in the collegiate level, um, bringing people into um, developing as a man, because um, you're a boy when you come out of high school. And a lot of people, when they jump, make that jump from the NCAA, the uh, high school sports into the NBA, it's really tough for them because they're not mature. And now you, you came into a, a arena where you're dealing with, with grown men um, and then the business aspect. And especially if you're a young kid, like we talked about coming from nothing, to have all those things and not be able to mature and able to grow and, 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 and from college being able to um, organize your time and learn how to be a conditioned athlete, had experience of integrating with, your, with classmates and people of different cultures, whatever the case may be. There's a lot of things that college offer, offer that you have to, um, that you, 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 you gain, you, you begin to appreciate when you go through those steps. So, and I also think that um, as a fan, the fans lose the same way the NCAA lose because when I look at Duke, when I look at uh, Carolina and Kentucky and all these places, you know, I, growing up, you know, I, you know, you pick your team in college. So when you're watching college basketball, you you want to see those players that developed in high school that's going playing the college ranks, and you and you grow a relationship with with your programs and with players. And when those players just skip it, it kind of like to me it loses out. I would love to see LeBron go against Carmelo in uh in uh in, in college. You know, and their their um, rivalry probably would have grew even more from high school playing at Oak Hill and Akron from Mount Saint. Mount St. Mary's. And then if LeBron went to Ohio State and Melo was at uh, uh, Syracuse, and then if he went to, you know what I'm saying? So to me, it's like levels, that, and, and it's just certain things that you can't, you cannot uh, put a price on as far as um, college concern, as far as uh, learning how to develop as a person. So like I said, uh, everybody, in my opinion, lose, but the best option, I would agree with everybody, um, the most not even selfish option because it's selfless too at the same time because they're taking care of their families, not themselves. And in, 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 in the state that we're in would be probably the G League option just because the NCAA hasn't stepped it up to what they're supposed to do. So I believe if they do what they're supposed to do, everybody would be happy because the athletes would be compensated. We'll still be get the good product as a fan and the NCAA will push a good product out. Appreciate that perspective. So let's transition to the last dance. 
episode nine and 10. The episode that reminded us that Jordan is the GOAT. All right, so here we are, the last two episodes of The Last Dance. And let me just say, I was very sad to see this series go. Um, not having basketball for approximately two months, like this was like the shot in my arm that I needed to kind of compensate for a lack of um, the NBA. And so overall, I love the series. I really enjoyed the last two episodes just as I enjoyed the previous eight. Um, but the thing I wanted to talk about a little bit was Pizzagate. Um, and if you guys <laughs> remember from the series, um, for years and years and years, I think the general public believed that Michael Jordan had the flu, you know, he had the famous flu game as it's termed, and last Sunday they learned, I mean, I knew it wasn't the flu, but um, last Sunday the world learned that it was from some bad pizza um, from Utah. And I was thinking about it a little bit and I heard arguments um, on social media that, oh no, it wasn't a pizza, Michael Jordan was drunk, et cetera, et cetera. But knowing what we learned about Michael Jordan and knowing the type of player that he is, you have to ask yourself, would MJ do anything to jeopardize his ability to win in the finals? The answer is absolutely not. I, I don't think Jordan would have anything like self-intoxicate a game six against the Jazz, right? And so a lot of questions surrounded this pizza. Well, how did they know it was Michael Jordan, um, you know, that was ordering the pizza, you know, why did five people show up, whatever. The fact of the matter remains, regardless of what we think it is or don't think it is, the man was sick. He had food poisoning, which was confirmed this week, and he came out and still dropped 45 points on Utah's head. Now, if that alone didn't confirm for you that he was the GOAT, I really just don't know um, where we go from there. He had the flu. I mean, I'm sorry, he did not have the flu. He had food poisoning. And I remember when I had food poisoning just last year, a very severe case of it, I couldn't even walk. So to see what Mike was able to do, even in that adversity, I mean, you have people coming out the game because the AC was broken. Are you kidding me? And you have MJ playing like he couldn't even pick himself up. So for me, that was unbelievable. Uh, my perspective of Utah um, is probably at an all-time low. I mean, it wasn't that high before this, but if you tried to poison that man just because your team couldn't beat him, he, I mean, y'all are, are, are way low, way low on, on the list. Um, and people want to talk about Jordan's personality. I mean, I think other people have issues. Um, so... That is my perspective. I mean, this series solidified who the GOAT is. Um, there is no question. Um, no one carried Jordan off the court in his food poisoning game. He literally lifted and carried his team. And that's the end of the debate for me.
I think um, highlighting what, what Dion said as it relates to Jordan, uh, it's, it's amazing to me that Jordan, you know, people oftentimes like to say that Jordan had a super team. He had a great team around him, especially in their justification of LeBron's super teams, right? But I think the big difference is that the big difference is that Jordan seemed like at the end of the game, everything around, a lot of things around him would go wrong, but he would still find a way to give himself, get his team to victory. Like even when you watch that, that last game he played, not just the last dance, but then also watching the last game on Wednesday, he was shooting short the whole game. He was tired. Pippen was running like he was, he was basically walking down the court. Um, you know, he had to snatch victory out of the jaws out of defeat. And so I don't think anyone could ever make a better case. Not only is Jordan the GOAT, I don't know if there's a better winner than Jordan when, the, when, 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 when everything around you is going to go, go crazy. I mean, he, he, the man battled food poisoning and won. There's nothing he wasn't going to do to win a game. Someone pointed out that, that he would smoke cigars and drink, but somehow or another, like, let's think about this, right? Dion referenced uh, LeBron and the Heat when she didn't reference him explicitly, but indirectly. Uh, LeBron in the game where uh, against, his, against the Spurs, we started cramping up. Or Paul Pierce when he got, he got hurt. Michael Jordan is dehydrated, but you don't see him like almost dying on the court or just lying there like in pain. He found a way to push past all of that to carry himself to victory. But I did leave the series with one question that I need, I need the series to answer this. Why are Michael Jordan's hands shaped the way they are? What happened to his finger to make it just look the way it looks? Um, I think probably the same thing that happened to his eyes because the whole time I was like, what is wrong with MJ? He definitely <laughs> deteriorated over time. Yeah. He, got some, he must have had some good cigars. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, I guess my takeaway Oh, man, when I'm thinking about it now, there's so many different things that was really interesting to me about 9 and 10. I, I think um, growing up watching it, I didn't realize how competitive it was. Um, I didn't realize that um, his game seven was against uh, Indiana and Reggie Miller, uh, not in the finals, even though the finals were very competitive. But everything everybody said was was right on point. Um, I just did, I, To me, MJ look, made everything look easy. Um, so I was watching it not with the eyes that I have now when I analyze the game, but I was watching it as a young young kid, and I always knew that at the end of when the zeros on the clock, the Bulls was going to win, you know. But now looking through it through through the eyes of the documentary, it wasn't easy, um, and, and and I can appreciate that. So it made me respect him even more, especially when you got to think about. Scotty Pippen going down with a back injury and you're playing away in Utah, hostile environment. Um, it's, it's almost like I don't think we even really can comprehend the, the amount of, of greatness you have to have to overcome basically 30, 40 percent of your team and Scotty Pippen falling out and not being able to play at a high level in the championship. And Mike was able to overcome, like everybody said, 
And, you know, and also just uh, you still got a sense of how competitive MJ was. Uh, when he talked about um, that last shot, <laughs> uh, he like, yo, it wasn't a push-off. <laughs> and that was something that was, like, debatable with people uh, along, uh, like, you know, throughout the years or whatever. And when we look at that shot over Brian Russell, um, you know, it, it, to me, you know, it doesn't matter. I think I, I just know your momentum going to shift a lot because you're going full speed, and that's the truth, too. So the slightest touch would make somebody look like that. But, you know, he just brought it up. Like, he had to let everybody know, yeah, it wasn't a push-off. And that tells me, like, you know, how serious he is about his craft and about his legacy. So that was that was kind of big to me. So, you know, it was a lot of things, man. As we go on with this conversation, I'm sure we're going to pick some different things out. But, yeah, th those are the, the, the couple main things I will point out. I want to pose a question. Um, did anyone see a kind of a redemption story for Scottie Pippen in the documentary, how they started in the beginning of him holding out his operation? Um, he, him battling Kraus, uh, and he didn't, he wasn't the one selected to take the last shot, but Kukos was, but during the final game playing as a bull, despite his back pain, he came back. Do you see that some type of redemption story of Pippen being strong and hard in a documentary? Um, I think the better question is, does Scotty see that as a redemption story? Because Scotty Pippen had a lot of issues um, with this documentary. Um, there were talks, I believe, um, last week where he didn't like how he was portrayed. Um, for me, Scotty Pippen, and if you're a basketball fan, um, Scotty was always all around solid. Like, I didn't need a documentary to, to, know what Scotty was to the Bulls team, right? Like it just solidified kind of in slow motion his impact on the team. Um, so, I mean, I don't know. Scotty didn't like it. He really felt like he was portrayed in a bad light. And I always ask the questions, um, even when I'm in court and people are like, well, you know, you know, you're trying to paint me out to be someone I'm not, but did it happen? is the question. And the reality is it just highlighted an overall view of who Scotty was. Um, I think that's what makes the documentary so powerful, right? Because we're not running in a field of daisies, hugging and kissing each other. We got to see real perspectives, the good, the bad, and sometimes the ugly. Um, so, I mean, it is what it is. Scotty, for me, has always been who he was. Um, and he'll always be one of the greats of the game for me, and the documentary did not change that. Um, so that's my take on it. Um, I think that, you know, I, I feel like the documentary, like, one, I, I agree with Deanna. I've always viewed Scotty as just one of the all-time greats. I mean, he was named top 50 players of NBA all-time, and I think in the 96, in 97. Um, so I got love for Scotty. Uh, I do think this documentary highlighted a lot of flaws in his chinks in his armor in a way that I don't think one game toughing it out really, really answers. Because it, it almost like the way Jordan talked about Scotty at some points in the documentary is like, yeah, Pippen needed, he went, Pippen didn't have this. I had to give this to him. I had to support him. I had to do this. Pippen wasn't the one that's going to do this, that, and the third. I, so, I mean, 
from a documentary perspective, that was not enough to redeem Scottie Pippen. But do I, does it, to me, does it tarnish his legacy? No, it doesn't tarnish his legacy. But from documentary perspective, he pretty much smacked Scotty for like eight, seven episodes, uh, eight or eight episodes, and then say, like, okay, I'll give you these last two. I mean, I feel for Scotty. I, I feel, um, the thing about documentaries is that um, you can always, you have the control to make somebody look good or bad. And uh, there are several ways you could have made Mike look worse. So Scotty is probably coming from that view, like, you know, you guys could have made me look a little bit better if you wanted to. Uh, so so uh, to Phil, you had to point out, you had to be a, a person that was just looking for the, the light <laughs> to, to, find a, to find a glimmer of light in that story from the uh, documentary perspective. But since you brought it up, I do think it shows character um, for Scotty Pippen. Um, Scotty kind of paved the way for a lot of these athletes uh, being able to get paid. Being being able to have a voice, so it's certain things that we we didn't we don't look at from the um, from the documentary that Scotty did. You know, Scotty did a lot of good things, and I don't think he was as bad as I mean to the to the to the just a, a normal person's eyes viewing it to the public. Of course, he's gonna look like a villain. He's gonna look like he's selfish. But uh, coming from you know sports and 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 playing and, and knowing people that play the game, I think Scotty did a lot of things that was good for the progression of basketball for athletes. Um, being able to stand up for yourself. Um, sometimes you gotta be selfish for yourself because at the end of the day, people don't see what the GMs and, and the owners of the teams do and how much money they make and, and, and how much they don't care about the athletes. So sometimes you gotta make those, those decisions where, listen, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna I'm affect your, your team, oh, Mr. Owner, by sitting out because um, I know we can probably pull through at the end of the day as, as a Bulls organization, but I got to let you know that I'm not pleased with what's going on. But I think it showed a lot of character from for Scotty to be able to play with a back injury, man. I mean, you know, playing with a bad back is crazy. It's, it's like, it's like, it's like torture. So for Scotty to, to just try to gut it out um, and he was a shell of himself. But it, it showed character to me and showed that he was all about the team. So it kind of did make up some ground from from uh, how the documentary was trying to make him look, in his eyes at least. But I didn't look at him like that from from me. I thought he was – I thought Scotty still looked good. He just looked like a real dude uh, going through real situations. It wasn't a Disney story. And life isn't a Disney story. But they painted MJ almost, uh, made him look like a Disney story, so – and I think what I would say is, think about how they, they phrased the documentary. It was called The Last Dance, but whose last dance, really? We know it was, was it the Dynasty's last dance or was it Jordan's last dance? Because surely it was the Dynasty's last dance, but I will say that, that Jordan made sure in the documentary that anything questionable about him was defended. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Uh, um, I'm laughing because Dion uh, said there was Byron Russell's last dance. He definitely was skating and dancing on that last play. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I think that um, Calvin brought up just just some great points to the extent of the power. I think of the power 
of who's telling who's controlling the narrative whether it's Michael Jordan controlling the narrative in this documentary whether it's um I have his book uh, well-paid slave uh Kirk Flood's fight for free agency and professional sports you know one of the things that the owners have done and same with the NCAA is what they'll do when someone is a good athlete with the Kaepernick is a good athlete but is pushing a more progressive agenda that's more for the benefit of the players they will try to throw mud and damage their reputation and so even with athletes right you know when when an athlete is is in a negotiation for free agency or trying to determine if they're going to stay where they're going to go what oftentimes will happen is that the owner or the GM will put out misinformation or they will send out some problematic narratives about them trying to um, damage who, who the athlete is on the market. So um, Colin Kaepernick, you know, they, they really damaged his reputation. They took his conversation uh, about it being a social issue to make, to try to point him as uh, a racist himself. Or um, when you think about, um, um, man, I, there's just so many athlete stories who we get one side of the picture and the sports media will run with it, but we don't really hear both sides of the evils going on in the situation. I agree with that. So just to cap it off, and we, we know this documentary show that Jordan is the GOAT. And, but I really want to pose a question. Did it unveil the true essence of a dynasty and how it, it's not, as we see on TV, so easy, but things in the background, there's so many things in the background has to come together just to get to that level. Absolutely, and I think Kelvin mentioned this earlier, when we were growing up and we were actually experiencing this, um, watching this dynasty form itself in the 90s, everything just looked easy. You know, Michael Jordan and the Bulls as a team made everything look easy. And I think what this documentary did was shed real light on the pains and the groanings that happen behind the scenes. You know what I mean? And and I, I kind of thought of it for like a real life practical example as a woman who's pregnant for nine months, right? We're not privy to what's going on with her internally when she's carrying that child, but then when the child is birthed, we're like, oh my gosh, it's perfect, right? And that is essentially what the Bulls did for us in the 90s. It showed us this perfect child almost um, on the court. And um, this was the first time that we really, really got to see what it takes to build and the troubles behind the scenes in creating a dynasty. Um, especially having an owner like Krauss. So, I mean, they were unbelievable. Yeah, you talk about, um, you talk about two, three peats. Um, I mean, it's just, it's just epic, man. Uh, so far as, I think one thing that we need to uh, realize too is that Mike gave the world a blueprint um, on what it takes to be that successful and that and that dominant, and I feel I feel like um, players like Kobe uh, studied that blueprint and, and became successful. But he he showed us the amount of sacrifice that's needed to be to be at that level, 
And I thought it was real interesting that people don't really realize that the X's and O's and on the hardwood was just a percentage of what it took for the Bulls to overcome. Because you have things that's off the court. You have the, uh, the media. You have um, your GM that you're fighting against. You have Dennis Rodman's behavior. You have so many different factors that come to play into winning a championship. So people don't really realize that winning a championship is just as big off the court that it is on the court. So it's not just about us just playing that day and, and coming together. No, we somebody has to sacrifice their time and get better, be in the gym. So Mike started that breakfast club with him, Ron Harper, and Scottie Pippen because he realized that winning a basketball championship it requires way more work than on the court. So that, to me, was, was huge, and it tells me how you really uh, build a dynasty Building a championship team is one thing. You know, you you all may go in that year on the same page. And that's tough. That's tough as it is winning one championship. But to win uh, three, two, three-peats, it's just beyond comprehension, man. And, and, a, and a level of dedication and sacrifice. He had to sacrifice his nature. He had to sacrifice his – Mike said, I wouldn't let my kids come. You know, and it just wasn't for them but it was for him too, because he realizes a certain amount of focus that he needs to, to be able to perform, you know, and it's a certain amount of scrutiny that comes with your family being there, like being in Utah. If he had to think about, he, of course he wanted to celebrate with his family, but if he had to think about his kids in the stands, his wife was going on or things off the court, you know, getting tickets and all this crazy stuff, you know, his focus might not have been in, in depth as it would have been as, you know what I'm saying, decision that he made, of course, to have them stay at home. So I think, you know, off the court is just as big as on the court. And Mike just gave a blueprint. But the question comes down to is who was really willing to sacrifice that much for that, for that success? So Mike just put us all, he put us all on notice and he showed us that his levels to this. And I don't know if you're willing to give up your soul for this type of, uh, this type of success. Wow. Thank you so much. So, Let's transition to the NBA. Should the NBA cancel the season? Should the NBA do uh, the 16 teams play right into the playoff? Or should the NBA try to wait this out and start up in June? Um, so should the NBA play? Should they play or should they not? Should they scrap? Should they come back um, next season? As a fan, I'm just saying flat out, I want to see them finish the, game, finish the, finish the year off. I want to see them play. I don't feel like nobody really has any solutions or good ideas on how it's going to look. Also, I do feel like whatever way they go, it's going to be an asterisk beside it. You know, no matter what happens, you're not going to please everybody. And it's going to be an asterisk because you think about people train themselves for the specific season. So having a pause like this in the season it's almost like a disadvantage for somebody. It's going to be a big type of disadvantage because I didn't never train for this. You know what I'm saying? When I went into this preseason, we went into the season, um, we, we, we trained for uh, whatever, the, however long the season is, uh, and, and we didn't plan for no type of um, a break. So it's not going to be fair. It's not going to be fair to judge because whoever wins this year, if they do come back, chances are that they a good chance are they wouldn't have won uh if if the season was i don't know if i would say that 
But but you never know if they would have won if the season was going on like that. So I feel like it's going to be a question mark besides whoever wins. But just as selfishly looking as a fan right now, I still want to see basketball. But I don't think it's going to be – I don't think it's going to be one that we we look at um, – when we look at history and say, okay, this was this was a, just a regular season. This is definitely far the farthest thing from a regular season. <laughs> I think what I would say is, if my team was a championship, ain't nobody gonna tell me nothing. I, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. We got the championship. So, uh, it, and I will say there is, and Dion, don't say nothing. There's a uh, there is an advantage for the Sixers in the sense that Ben Simmons in he was injured at this point. I mean, he was probably not gonna be ready for the playoffs but at least now he's gonna be healthy going to the season but I, I, to Calvin's point I agree because um I agree because think about it I think like the Bucks they had momentum the Lakers had momentum that momentum was gone everyone's pretty much start I mean everyone's pretty much starting at at just like a ground level and you have to build. So teams that were hot, it doesn't matter. Teams with the talent, it doesn't matter. All that matters is can they put it together for one big stretch at the end of the season. Uh, so I'm torn, right? I, I have two ideas that come to my mind. One idea I have is I would love to have like a just a big 32 tournament to get to the final, like maybe like the final final four then you have series or you know you're gonna have to um if you play the rest of the season i think you should condense it i don't think you should play the rest of the season i think you should play like maybe like 15 more games just just for seat for seating purposes and those and those bottom dwellers you know who aren't going to make it anyway it doesn't really matter um but i think i like that but i think you know the main concern is uh, for me, because teams are going to be going through training camp at their facility. How do you ensure from training camp to the season no one gets it? Because if someone gets it again, it's over. If, if one athlete gets it again, it's over. So I would say that there's got to be daily testing, and it's going to need to be immediate response testing, like within an hour or so, knowing if a player has it or not to ensure the safety of, of the players. So as a fan, I love to see it um, because, you know, as, as Dan alluded to, I'm miserable without having basketball right now. You know, it, I wake up and it's just a day. Some days I don't even know what day it is with, with the quarantine. But at least, when, you know, when my team's playing, I have something to look forward to that evening. Now it's just kind of like I spend time with my family. That's great. I'm not saying it's not a great thing to do. But there's always that thing, you know, I look forward to spending time with my family watching the Sixers play basketball. So I um, agree with what the guys have said already. I think as a basketball fan, I definitely want to see basketball. Um, I feel it's like absolutely necessary. With that said, I think um, last month I was more in line with let's just go straight to the playoffs. Um, I believe the teams have played approximately 63 or 64 games um, when the season ended. So I felt at the time that we had like a really good baseline um, to see, you know, the 16 teams who would make the playoffs. Um, the 
problem with that is in the East, I kind of feel like your 18s are solidified. Um, I think team number nine is about five and a half or six games out from team number eight. And the chances of them overcoming that deficit with approximately 16 or 17 games is not very high, in my opinion. But when you look um, in the Western Conference, I believe teams 9, 10, 11, and 12, they are only four games out. And these teams were playing pretty competitively, um, in particular, the Trailblazers towards the end of, well, not the end of the season, but when basketball ended. And so I think if it does come back, there has to be some mechanism where a few more games could be played, hopefully the rest of the season, because I think when you start looking at the West, it's really, really unfair um, just to select um, just to select like the top eight teams to move forward. And so that's kind of where I am. I do agree with Kelvin that I feel like teams and players will definitely be affected by this. With that said, Kawhi Leonard is loving this. This is the load management that he has dreamed of um, when the season started. And Kawhi Leonard is one of my favorite players too. So he will probably come back a whole beast but I am pretty sure that other players will be affected. Um, to the comment that there will probably be an asterisk, I'm kind of with Evan. Like, if my team wins, shoot, I don't care what anybody tell me. This was a legitimate season, <laughs> and this is how it boiled down. Um, I kind of like the idea of having, like, a 32-team tournament almost and then narrowing it down and create series like once you start getting that number down because then I feel like the Knicks might have a chance to win a game or two. Um, I don't know how confident I am about that, um, but that's a possibility. As far as Ben Simmons, I'm sorry, like I just couldn't let it go, Evan. As far as Ben Simmons is concerned, it don't matter how many games, how many seasons we played, he's going to end his career with five three-pointers. We know that. Nothing is going to change. Um, so as a fan, I would definitely say that I would love to see basketball come back. And at this point, I would take it in whatever format, whether they go straight to the playoffs, whether they play it out, at least to give the Western teams a chance to see what um, what the bottom of the eight would look like in the playoffs, um, however they decide. So I guess we'll know on June 1st once Adam Silver makes his determination. I mean, make, okay, finish the regular season, right? But this shouldn't be the Larry O'Brien trophy this year. <laughs> this should be the COVID-19 trophy. <laughs> this 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 is this is so far from what basketball is supposed to be, and y'all are talking straight like fans right now, and I love it. <laughs> but when we look at this kind of objectively, man, there's no way you can really not have an asterisk besides this. It's like, 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 like six is my team. Ben Simmons is gonna come back healthy. There's no way that Ben Simmons should be. He, he would he wouldn't have been ready, you know. So it's not really kind of fair. And that, you know, I want him to be back, of course, because he's probably the second best player on our team. 
But I just feel like there's so many holes in this thing. The rookies not rookies no more. <laughs> it's just like it's like so many different things that goes with this 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 COVID thing. So to me, it'll never look like a, a real season. It's worse than the NBA lockout season. Uh, I forgot who I think it was first one that year, but it's worse than a lockout season. I just feel like um, let's just call it something else. Just don't just don't just don't call it the Larry O'Brien Trophy this year. Call it something else. Let let the stats go for the regular season. Finish the season so you don't get rid of all the stats. But I just feel like this right here is just some nonsense. As far as like trying to make it seem like it, it is what it is, like a regular regular year, because it's just not. So let's just do something else new and innovative as far as the uh, the playoffs is concerned. And just finish out the regular season for the sake of sake of their stats. I know I'm, I know there's gonna be a lot of pushback on that, but but you know what I mean. That's what I'm sticking with. I mean, I I definitely I can definitely understand that. Um, and in a climate where we are in 2020, where people are um, in favor of participation awards, um, that would would go perfectly. Um, with the mentality like, yay, my team participated and, you know, it don't count, but they're there. Um, but I definitely get what you're saying. It's definitely a unique set of circumstances. Um, I think arguments could be made um, if someone else, you know, comes out of the blue and win. Like if the 76ers win, like clearly this was a COVID-19 type year. Yeah. Um, but you know, I I definitely agree. It definitely would not have the same weight as regular NBA seasons would have. Yeah, people get fat now. I mean, come on, man. Like, people sat at home. I mean, I just, I, I know we probably going to go to another topic, man. But it's like, it's, it's out of these people control, guys. It's like, come on, it's not a real year. And if the Sixers win, I'm going to be just like... And we can't win, Dion. By the way, just just to throw that out there, we can't win. It's not like we the Knicks, but, but thank I'm, you, thank you. All I'm saying is, it's still gonna be kind of suspect because it's just like it's so much, so many just variables involved. So it's not about just like Evan was saying, the momentum is lost. So that's not fair to a team like Milwaukee Bucks. You know, it's we can talk about this thing forever, man. And somebody else can have the last word, but I'm gonna stick where I'm sticking at. This should not be called the Larry O'Brien Trophy. Call it something else. Just finish the regular season. Oh, I'll just end by saying Goldberg, Defensive Player of the Year, hands down. Oh, he, he shut down the league, of course. He's shut down the, the league. <laughs> we can all agree on that. Goldberg? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, I want to thank everyone for listening to another episode to a lady and some dude podcast.